Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined, as always, by Dmitry Kalyagin. We have a fantastic show for you this week. So much still going on in the world. I think just kind of vindications all around for the World War Now thesis, for the ideas that we're perpetuating on this show. Dmitry, how's your week been? Yeah, it's been a good week. Lots of news to follow, um, stories from all over the world, from Ukraine, Russia, abroad, from Africa. Again, the, the timeline continues, you know, the Cold War is emerging into a hot one. And yeah, we're just following things very closely. And yeah, definitely some uh, some sad news, mostly. Uh, there are some positive news, but yeah, there are definitely some unfortunate news coming out of Ukraine. It looks like the persecution is coming out again. So stay tuned for that. We'll probably discuss that towards the end of the episode. But um, yeah, to start us off, uh, Conrad, yeah, hit us with the hard-hitting military subjects from Ukraine, Russia. Yeah, again, as again, as far as the military situation on the ground goes, the main story is still the, you know, abject failure of the Ukrainian <laughs> counteroffensive. I'm sure people have seen the maps that show that, you know, tens of thousands dead, you know, months of expent Western military equipment and ammunition for what amounts to, you know, fractions of fractions of of territory, you know, not even, you know, no major towns, even just a few villages and some fields in between them. And it's, it shows that, I mean, there's reports now that supposedly some, you know, Western NATO leaders had told Ukrainians that they could reach the Sea of Azov in two days with the forces that they had been given. So there's, there's really no, there's just no victory on the horizon for any part of the front line in Ukraine. But this leads into what I think many people are starting to realize is sort of the the understood truth, the kind of just the layman's wisdom about what's going to happen, much like I would even say it became sort of layman's wisdom that Russia was going to invade in February 2022. But like, I didn't believe it. You know, I thought that it was, you know, the West hyping it up like they had been for so many years, but turns out they actually went in. But this time, I do think that the word about the possible second partial mobilization coming in September, uh, accompanied then by a big Russian offensive with actual notable pieces of territory taken happening in February 2024, after a few months of preparation from that mobilization. And that, I think many are saying, would likely be mostly first in the Kharkov direction and then in Donetsk. And we're seeing already this Russian push towards Kupyansk, which... Again, we haven't really seen huge pushes in that direction since uh, last summer's Ukrainian offensive that drove them out of, you know, Izium and Kupyansk and these places. So now it seems that Russia is making it very clear that, no, we're we're coming back. You know, that one little success you had is not going to stay. It's not going to stay real on the map for much longer. So Kupyansk, I think, will be one of the first places kind of advanced upon in February 2024. That seems to be what's taking place, what's shaping up. And that all comes amidst the backdrop of the, you know, the escalatory rhetoric in the neighborhood between Poland and Belarus and, you know, Poland really beefing up their military every day. They send more and more troops to the Belarusian and Ukrainian border. And I think even Shoigu made some comments about Poland recently, which he's kind of been remiss to do. So it's all heating up there. Lukashenko always coming in with the interesting commentary. He's really kind of the, he's kind of just the, He's who you stay plugged into to see the day-to-day changes. He's always saying something, so that that's it's. We're gonna talk about what he said, but yeah, the the military situation again with the Black Sea is more of the same, even more actually. Russia has been pummeling Ukraine's port infrastructure, all the not just Nikolaev and Odessa, but as you said before, Rainy and all these ports all the way down right towards Romania, 
And yeah, like the grain deal is totally over. It's not coming back. And Russia understands that they, they'd see that the military situation and political situations unfolded where substantial damage can and needs to be taken against or done against, you know, Ukrainian infrastructure at this point. And again, we know that they don't want to just level Odessa or even level the entire port, but they have no problem just destroying ships, destroying, you know, mass docking infrastructure and things like that. And that's that's continuing. Ukraine has, of course, tried to fight back in the Black Sea. We see more and more videos of their unmanned naval vehicles trying to ram ships and whatnot, getting shot at by the Russian Navy. The drones against Crimea and Sebastopol and near the Kerch Bridge as well have increased. You know, Russia's repelled a myriad of attacks at this point on them. None of the Sebastopol, you know, 20 swarms of like 20 drones will get shot down just right off right off the coast where civilians are walking around. So Ukraine is definitely trying to, between that and the increased strikes on Donetsk, they still are using the terror factor as the conventional military completely fails along the front lines. So yeah, it's uh, it's getting pretty interesting in the sense that very we we all kind of know, you know, more so than before where eventually Russian the Russians are going to push. The question just is, you know, when are they going to do that partial mobilization? And again, that September date that kind of ties into we we did say even before this kind of came out and was being widely discussed that you know September eighteenth that's supposedly when you know Strelkov could maybe get out of detention, maybe he'd be under house arrest, he'd be able to start talking about things again. And that's, you know, that, that ties into what we said, that something really might be going on before that, right around that time where, you know, maybe people just want to be there to give him a stern talking to so he doesn't say anything rash when those things really start to go down. Yeah, that's right. One of the unfortunate stories related to Stelkov has been uh, just this year, um, uh, actually for, for the first time we saw a actual national Bolshevik in Russia from, from St. Petersburg, one of Strelkov's, I guess he was a supporter of Strelkov and he was actually a volunteer and was a popular humani humanitarian aid uh, donator and he was bringing humanitarian aid from Russian cities into Donetsk and Lugansk for many years. And uh, uh, his name was Ramzan Suleimanov, so a very sort of Tatar, maybe a Muslim background for him in Russia. And so uh, he ended up speaking out against the judge who sentenced Trelkov to uh, several months' detention and he called him, uh, forgive my words, he called him a, a contraceptive condom servant. In fact, and he was imprisoned himself for three months. So now Russia has really shown that look, if you if you do support Stelkov, at least the the judicial system in Russia said that look, you you're gonna have to you're gonna have to be silent on this particular issue. You can't you can't be insulting judges. You can't be insulting the government, the prosecution. And Suleimanov is spending time now in in a prison outside of Moscow actually on the outskirts. Uh, the prison is not as nice as the one Strelkov's staying at. So it is a little bit, so even former volunteers and people who have participated in the military do not necessarily save from judicial uh, judicial action in Russia. So Judge Antonov has really uh, lashed out at the guy who insulted him, which is very interesting. Again, but there's no news of Strelkov, of course, coming out. He's been in prison for three weeks. Me and Conrad emphasize this many times, but you know, it's, Strelkov isn't just the average military guy from the front lines. He is probably one of the most... Uh, followed orthodox christian christian layman in the world in terms of uh, probably second only to putin i would say in terms of collective like popularity the amount of people that listen to his opinion and and he has shown himself to be a very pious christian so we do follow him closely we want to see where exactly his story takes him because he has been loyal to the cause and most of the ideas we talk about on the show he actually would agree with in fact 
And yeah, so definitely we show our support for him and hopefully he gets out of prison again and he's allowed to speak out. Um, nevertheless, uh, the Odessa situation I find very interesting with the whole grain deal, Conrad, because on one hand, Russia is holding the EU and uh, I guess Ukraine in some, sort of like a hostage situation. It's slowly with its long range missile strikes bombarding the infrastructure that you mentioned, as well as the Odessa ports and not allowing not allowing any exports to come out of Ukraine. So which the exports, most of them go to Europe. So in fact, in the EU soon, we'll see an increased uh, the food prices increasing, especially for things such as seed oils, which are very popular, not saying they're healthy, but, you know, seed oils, grains, uh, even um, all kinds of farming produce that is exported out of Ukraine. The prices will be skyrocketing. And this is alongside all the other um, recessionary recessionary inflation we've been seeing recently, right? And the right rising of interest rates. So, it never, so I think Europeans are going to suffer even more um, slowly over time. As this grain deal, uh, as the grain deal isn't restarted, and you know, uh, Turkey looks like it's kind of changing its tune on that. Erdogan it does want to invite Putin to to Ankara and kind of get into talks, but will Putin really arrive in Turkey? I mean, that's most likely not going to occur. I think he's a little bit too safe for that. He's not even going to the BRICS summit later this year, uh, later in August, in, to South Africa. So it's that all whole ICC consideration that he's keeping in mind. So the whole Odessa situation, it is very similar to a hostage crisis. So Russia is holding Ukraine hostage in a way, saying that, look, the longer you don't actually um, accept our, you know, the longer you keep sanctions on Russia, especially the SWIFT sanctions are hitting very hard against the uh, Russian Agricultural Bank. So Russia has this particular agricultural bank, which is 100% state controlled. In fact, the former head of the FSB, his son actually runs this bank almost single-handedly, Nicholas Patrushev. And this bank is essentially receives most of the subsidies that Russia that from the exports of Russia from Russia to Ukraine and of course from the Ukrainian and their supports this agriculture bank has been disconnected from the swift payment system as soon as the SMO began and the Russian politicians as well as diplomats have been trying to get the EU to you know unsanction the agricultural bank and it just hasn't happened so I think that's one of the deals in July 2023 they mentioned that if Russia was if the EU was to of course grant Russia this reconnection to swift, it would of course Russia would prolong the grain deal, and it hasn't occurred. The agricultural bank is still sanctioned, and Russia is very, very much suffering under that. So I think, I think, as you said, the grain deal will will stay dead. And the longer this, the longer that the grain deal stays dead, and the longer the EU, of course, holds Russia, holds Russia in this stalemate, the more ports and the more infrastructure will be destroyed on the this end. Until eventually, even if the grain deal restarts, I mean, will there be any ports left? Right? Will there be? Um, you know, will there be any any substantial exports that could even come out of Ukraine? That's the I think consideration long term here. And I think from a broader World War Now perspective, you know, thinking about our kind of our our thesis on where this is all going with Turkey and stuff. Once Russia does secure that Black Sea coast, then I mean, what's the next point of contention? I mean, it's the Dardanelles and the Bosphorus Straits, right? I mean, it's Russia's actual access to the Mediterranean and then the world, you know, the former World Ocean. Like that's where the choke point becomes because after once Russia takes Odessa, Nikolaev, Rainy down the way down towards Romania, I mean they're the undisputable, indisputable Black Sea power. So, and we know what the and we know who talks about that and what the prophecies say about the Straits and everything. So I think we can start to really see where where this is going in a lot of ways. And I, I want to read uh, Shoigu's comments that we briefly mentioned about Poland. He, he said, actually, Poland is planning to form a joint Polish-Ukrainian military unit, ostensibly for security, but with the ulterior motive of occupying western Ukraine. 
Uh, he drew uh, Shoigu drew attention to the dangers associated with Poland's militarization. There are plans to create a permanent so-called Polish military formation. And that's from TASS. So Shoigu's kind of echoing what we had first heard from Lukashenko a few weeks back about uh, wanting to protect Western Ukraine, which again, that's not what we've been hearing at all from really anybody in the Russian leadership sphere at the beginning of the special military operation. We were seeing people like Medvedev and even Kadyrov and others sharing maps about Poland and the Czech Republic, Slovakia and Romania taking parts of Western Ukraine and Russia, you know, taking the rest. So it seems that now there's, with the whole, the way that Poland's relationship with Russia has escalated and how the Polish embassy has been turned basically into a U.S. base of intelligence operations, they realize you can't have, I think, a Polish force occupying any part of Ukraine. That would, because if that happened, that would, that would kind of render any of the, the whole purpose of the special military operation being to have that buffer between NATO, you know, that would render that slightly less useful if something like that were to occur. So it seems that that is where this is going and Poland is really being kind of pointed to as an enemy. But just after Shoigu says this, of course, Lukashenko comes back out and wants to make it clear that he still sees a path to friendship with his neighbors. As he said, neighbors are not chosen. They're, uh, you know, they're given to us by God, you know, saying that, you know, Belarus is a nation created by God, as was Poland, you know, that, you know, God's control of geography and political geography or these things. And that, I think that's a beautiful thing to say. It's just, I guess... I guess you believe in God now, Lukashenko, but he's saying all of this, and I don't know if that's to counter-signal Shoigu or if he just, you know, there was those supposed helicopters flying over into Polish territory. Uh, Lukashenko's also talked about even weaponizing more of the migrant release that's on the Polish border, so maybe he's trying to cool things down a little bit as he sees the amount of troops increasing. And after, I think there were some certain comments from NATO and other EU officials that any movement of, of Wagner into anywhere else outside of Belarus, from Belarus, would be viewed as an attack by Belarus and the Russian Federation. So, you know, maybe maybe Lukashenko got a little spooked by the Article 5 talk, but he's always all over the place. I don't know if he's necessarily spooked, but it seems that in the midst of all of this, the Pyrrhic victory, everyone remembers the chart, you know, that has, you know, Russian victory being, you know, everything west of the, everything east of the Dnieper and the Black Sea coast is like a victory, and then like the Pyrrhic victory and stuff like that. The the Pyrrhic victory, I think, is no longer an option. Like, basically, Russia is going for what could be viewed in basically any circles as total victory, which is good. It's just, there is always the looming threat of premature negotiations if Putin is wooed too much by certain promises, I think. So that's that's always what we're going to be on the lookout for. Yeah, I think the cooling down rhetoric of Lukashenko towards Poland is very much welcomed by the Polish who still keep to the position that, look, NATO is a defensive alliance first and foremost, which we, we both understand that NATO is both defensive and offensive, at least from what we've seen their expansion into Sweden, Finland, the Baltic states after the falling of the, you know, falling apart of the Berlin Wall and the Soviet Union. So, But the Polish defense minister clearly stated that it's Russia and Belarus as well as Wagner, their um, puppet their puppet uh, mercenary private company that's the stabilizing relations between Belarus and Poland. And he said that their presence, at least on the border in Poland, is why we're bringing 10,000 you know, 10, troops to the Polish border as a defensive countermeasure. And he's blaming as well as Lukashenko's rhetoric. That he's saying, look, if, if Lukashenko and Putin didn't use, didn't use such harsh rhetoric, we wouldn't need to, you know, begin um, conscripting and actually in, enforce some of these military reforms within Poland itself and actually increase our military capacity. So again, the Polish are not taking this kind of uh, powerful giga chat like position where they're claiming, look, we're 
we're trying to improve Poland, we're trying to improve its military to, you know, be the military arm of NATO, you know, in Europe. But no, they're mostly saying, again, it's this uh, victim victim rhetoric is still continuing to dominate where it's like, well, the the Russian bullies, the Russian, the Belarusian bullies are still at our border and we need to protect ourselves. So again, it's still that defensive mindset. It's still very present in Poland. And, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of been the, the dominant factor, at least for the last 30 years. And it's not really changing. It's always that idea that the USSR has bullied Poland and Nazi Germany bullied Poland and the Russian Empire bullied Poland and the Russian Federation with Wagner continued to bully uh, the Polish and in fact uh, even I mean in terms of soft power right Conrad you've probably seen those Wagner advertisements po being posted on the Polish border on the fences on the Polish side of the fences uh, well, <laughs> Wagner militants are sticking stickers with uh, QR codes which Polish mobile phones can scan, of course, and they take you to the Wagner website, which lets you sign up into the mercenary group, and they're saying, join us, you know, we, we pay better than the Polish military. <laughs> it's like really funny Wagner advertisements. And of course, this is just the slight geopolitical trolling, you could say, but nevertheless, I think, uh, I think the Polish state is somewhat agitated, as well as, look, so Poland, you could say, is on the front line, uh, and NATO's front line against Russia, but what's happening on the back end, right? We see France losing control of Africa. We see the UK kind of silently sitting back, not commenting on it. Whatever's happening in Northwestern Africa, and notice the UK, again, is in control of Nigeria still, because Nigeria was its former colony in a way, so you can always say, like, Nigeria is... Africa, you know, still the UK's um, base in Africa. But nevertheless, we see Poland kind of being like, hey, guys, what's happening back there? We see Germany is economically falling apart, not really, you know, kind of being in this uh, immigrant as well as uh, energetic turmoil. And we see France now kind of unsure of itself and France almost focusing more on Africa than it is, than it is on the Ukraine. And in fact, it probably doesn't bring any hopes to the fact that Macron, for whatever reason, wanted to visit the BRICS summit in August of this year in South Africa. I mean, I'm sure that doesn't make the Polish politicians feel any safer. Like the, the EU's, the U, EU and NATO are somewhat united around a common goal to destroy Ukraine. It's like, well, if Macron is playing footsie with, um, you know, Africans as well as Russians and the BRICS states, you know, where's the unity there? And the UK is just silently sitting there not commenting on anything. It's just, yeah, I, 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 think the, I think the Polish should probably reconsider their allegiance to all of these superstructures and maybe just focus on their own sovereign interests first and foremost. Well, like we've said before, France, I think, is the key dynamic player on the continent in the, in the realm of multipolarity, more than Italy, more than even Spain, these other places that also have some of that undercurrent due to whether it's more of a fascist or a traditionalist Christian bent in their history there somewhat aligned more aligned against the you know against the current zog system and i think france is you know even macron in his neoliberal way has talked about you know strategic independence for both france and even the european union but when it comes to belarus and poland poland they're moving more and more troops to the sulawiki corridor where they uh I think even them and the Lithuanians are talking about coordinating stuff there. And in Belarus, multiple new bases on top of extreme growth of that Mogilev base that was the first Wagner base. It's gotten huge, and there's other bases that have kind of stemmed off of it. So it's it's all very real there. But when it comes to what you were talking about, Niger and, and Africa, I want to talk about Victoria Newland's visit. I know we were talking about that a little bit off-air and kind of what that means and just generally what's going on in the African World War, the the kind of extension of World War Three into Africa, you know, there's also Sudan, Ethiopia, and everything going on there, which is big, but that's almost died down compared to what it was before, and, you know, the Sahel region is where everything's hot right now, and 
you know, Dimitri, I'm I'm okay if we want to on the show start using the Russian pronunciation of Niger. That I'll leave that decision to you. But uh, what are your thoughts on Victoria Newland's visit? Well, I think Newland's it's very interesting because she she visited visited Niger directly and very brave. Notice how some of these globalist Democrats, these you know servants of servants of the Antichrist, almost when it's when they get called on to do a job, for example, when Anthony Blinken needs to visit a somewhat uh, cold China, he actually does so and he arrives straight to Beijing and he gives a very pro-Chinese speech. And Newland actually goes to Niger and she speaks very blatantly to straight up military a military junta of you know of all sorts and just all and even directly asks them, well can I see the former president? I know he's in detention somewhere. Can I check up on his health? And they say no. <laughs> so she's um this, you know, she's not really a skilled diplomat being just a, uh, I believe she's the deputy uh, secretary of state of the, of the United States. But Victoria Newland, yeah, openly asks uh, Niger if they can return to a democratic form of government, if they can, you know, somewhat resort, have a fair election or a referendum of sorts. And they, of course, decline. Uh, and then she just leaves. So it's a very mysterious kind of visit in a way. And my interpretation of this, of course, uh, you may agree, Conrad, but I think Victoria Newland is was essentially the the servant of you know essentially representing the United States, representing the Biden administration, arriving in Niger and telling the military junta that uh, look, the U.S. is going to wash its hands off of what's got happening in Northwest Africa, and they're not going to be involved. So they're going to leave Niger. Uh, the Chinese, Russian proxies, as well as you know whoever is against the, the, the French and the ECOWAS, they're going to leave France alone with all of these enemies in Africa, and the U.S. is not going to be involved directly. And I think that's what Newland's visit essentially, um, essentially was. It was kind of like a Pontius Pilate type moment where she washed her hands and just said, "Look, uh, you guys can deal with Macron and ECOWAS, and we won't be interrupting." Here. And I think that's probably because the you know the Biden administration is most likely preparing for the 2024 elections. We can see that too in the just the the rhetoric and the news appearing. The U.S. news more and more is again focusing on the elections, less and less on Ukraine, and less and less on these foreign conflicts. Which you know, in this I think the people are somewhat tired of all these various military interventions. I don't think the Biden administration is ready for some sort of support of Macron's France and Africa. I think that's a little bit a little bit far fetched. And it really looks, it really reminds me of Anthony Blinken's visit to China as well, where he essentially seceded to all of the Chinese wishes and said, look, we're going to work with China closely. And also um, Taiwan is uh, is also, you know, historically a Chinese territory. So we look forward to the People's Republic of China, of course, reuniting with Taiwan. And when Anthony Blinken did that, essentially he showed the Chinese that, look, we're not looking to fight you guys anymore. At least it won't be like a trade war or any sort of, uh, you know, anti-Chinese rhetoric. He, that's besides what Biden says openly when Biden calls Xi Jinping a dictator in his, his senility and his weird speeches. But, you know, Biden's not the official leader of the U.S. There's a, it's obviously the cabinet behind him. He's simply this bizarre figurehead who has dementia, unfortunately. So he should be in a nursing home. But in fact, he's he's out here at least uh, appearing on TV and giving these bizarre statements. But yeah, I think that's my take on the Newland situation. And again... I think uh, most folks, you do need to read a bit of history of Africa, and I needed myself to brush up on it, the colonial history of Africa to understand the various uh, coalitions and the alliances that these countries have, it, it, you know, just their connections to former the former colonial masters. So, for example, uh, the 1884 Berlin Conference, which set out kind of divided Africa, and Russia also participated in this conference, although Russia had zero colonies in Africa, it kind of had to give this European oversight to this entire, you know, 
debacle, the 1884 conference essentially stated that Nigeria will belong to the UK or the British Empire, and Niger will be French territory. So, in fact, you can say that Nigeria and Niger, despite them having very similar names, have very different... For hundreds of years, they've kind of belonged to two different power blocks in Europe, one being the French and one being the, the British. So we'll see if Nigeria necessarily... So France cannot necessarily automatically call Nigeria to ally itself with ECOWAS and, of course, invade Niger. They would need to receive consent from the UK. And as we know, the UK is a very mysterious power play in this whole um, you know, geopolitical affair. It's almost like the shadow the shadow player of sorts. It has almost no military presence anywhere, but it does control the banks. It has a huge um, lobby of Rothschilds as well as other, uh, you know, has a, a bunch of Russian oligarchs who live there. There's you know, the, the British British control of world affairs is very, very, it's very much for a soft power approach. And in fact, they are, I think, the somewhat silent overlords sitting behind everything and influencing power around the world. So we'll see if the British wish to support France and support, you know, tell their allies Nigeria to, uh, assist, assist, uh, you know, assist the, the French and Niger, and essentially form an invasion. But you mentioned Conrad that the fact that ECOWAS has still hesitated, and the fact that they've called off any sort of almost instantaneous reaction to the coup in Niger, means that well, we're going to see a delayed reaction. And in fact, this uh, there won't be a blitzkrieg. There won't be a blitzkrieg um, retaking and refor reformulating of a democracy in the uh, in the Republic of Niger. So. Uh, I think at the moment, those who started the coup and that particular loyal to Russia, Russia-aligned government is somewhat safe. No, I, I agree. And I think based on the reliable sources I've read, there is, you know, behind the scenes, there is, you know, work being done for an invasion force, but they've admitted that, you know, kind of, you know, throwing their hands up like, whoa, whoa, don't get crazy. It's going to take like six months to, to be real, you know, kind of like a Russian partial mobilization moment. But yeah, ECOWAS is, you know, multiple members have pledged not to get involved as well as you know major forces algeria the forces in lip some of the forces in libya obviously the russia aligned forces you know haftar but and then of course mali burkina faso but in general it seems that whoever's you know making these calls behind the scenes in the military industrial complex down there they clearly know that you know wagner is going to be on the ground if they really go in so that's why i think they're really balking on going in because i mean look niger mali burkina faso these are like like 3v1 if it was really just those countries versus nigeria nigeria could could take it out like they'd be able to win but uh, we we know that with even just a little bit i think of a little bit of the white man's power in there and the 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 the, the balance completely changes and we know that you know wagner is basically one of the most powerful fighting forces on earth today by far some of the most experienced and well-equipped so it's no joke when they're on the ground there, but I just want to kind of as well take a bit of a victory lap on all of this. People, of course, can go reread my article, The Africa Front, from a few months back. But even before that, before we even started World War Now, there was the World War Now Twitter thread, which, of course, these days is having its content blatantly stolen by, by MAGA communists like Jackson Hinkle, which, you know, come on, man, just, just hit the retweet button. It's not too hard. The rest of the thread's good, too, but I just want to... People may have seen this. There's this video in Burkina Faso not too long after that coup had been, or rather the junta there had been challenged and won a challenge to its legitimacy. And there's, you know, hundreds of Africans standing with Russian flags. I just, I just really do wonder where they get all these Russian flags. It's so funny to me. But I said this, this is July 1st, 2022. I said, regarding Africa, Russia has supported multiple coups and governments opposed to French influence in 
former colonial West Africa. Mali is currently experiencing fighting as a pro-Russian junta remains in power, and the recent coup in Burkina Faso, Faso has their junta leaning towards Russia. And since then, Niger has experienced a similar coup, and Chad is being threatened as well. So we've we've been on the money here, folks. You know, don't give don't don't doubt us. You know, we we're we're on the right track here. There's people that everyone else, you know, they eventually fall into place. All these people that are posting a million times a day about Burkina Faso, they couldn't even have told you where Burkina Faso was on a map last year. But we were out here bringing you that autistic analysis, and, you know, we're never going to stop. So I think, in general, the whole World War III thing, I I said at the beginning of the show, like, look, some of these fronts are going to surprise us. And, you know, Niger isn't where everybody thinks some things would happen, but clearly, whether it's rhetorically, geopolitically, and even militarily, it's... This 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 little episode is definitely advancing us along the little meter that exists in my head towards you know full blown hot World War Three. And you have to understand the uh, the geopolitical that victory that Russia actually gains from participating and assisting some of these African nations against their uh, former or current French as well as uh, British overlords is is substantial simply because. Either providentially or just by by accident, it seems that Russia's lack of participation in Africa has given it this, I guess, ideological uh, ideological or virtue signaling, I suppose, upper hand, this moral victory historically over over its Western European neighbors, simply because, well, in 1884, 1885, when uh, Tsar Alexander III sent his diplomats to the Berlin Conference, all it had to do was sanction the fact that Europe was going to separate Africa into all these different parts. Germany will get a piece, Portugal, Belgium, etc. And Russia, of course, would receive no part of Africa, except it would receive a partial protectorate over Ethiopia, because Russia was very interested in actually defending the Ethiopian kingdom from any sort of Italian as well as British uh, British colonial um pushes from Egypt, etc. So Russia, all Russia received from the division of Africa was this light protectorate over Ethiopia. In fact, Ethiopia, I think it had like a Russian imperial embassy at most and almost nothing else. So Russian, Russia never really participated, nor did it get gain fruits from the colonialization. But today it seems that the fact that Russia never, never actually um, invaded Africa, in fact, it will benefit it long term. And also the, the legacy of the USSR, if you recall, you, the USSR actually emphasized incredibly hard the fact that, well, decolonization was the primary goal of the Soviet Union. Decolonization of Africa was the, the major the major issue that needed to be addressed. They did so in Rhodesia, South Africa, famously. Uh, you know, they, they stood up against the apartheid. A lot of these very liberal sort of policies, which in fact didn't improve those countries at all. In fact, Rhodesia and South Africa were made a lot worse due to some of these uh, some of these reforms pushed by the USSR still in countries of western africa it seems that um just the fact that the Af- the africans they what all they remember is they remember this colonial history right which is why today if you're if you're i suppose a russian ambassador all you have to say is well we russians we're white like europeans but we've never actually colonized you guys so we can be friends today and the africans um i suppose in a somewhat of a simple minded fashion they'll just simply take that uh, on board and agree with it, and there you have it. You have a you have a geopolitical alliance just based on the fact that Russia never participated in, in African uh, in African colonization, and that seems to be what Lavrov and the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs is uh, sort of banking on. I think uh, long term that'll that'll sort of have show its benefits, and in fact that's what Russia's doing uh, through Wagner, through Prigozhin, who's also claiming to you know he's claiming to support the Central African Republic and all these other nations. Prigozhin isn't claiming that Wagner is somehow controlling these countries; he's simply claiming 
he's almost using this post-Soviet logic that, look, uh, we're going to liberate these countries from these capitalists. And it's just, it's just a bit strange. It's not, obviously it's not genuine, but it does have, it does have a utilitarian pragmatic sort of benefit behind it. Yeah. And I think this kind of ties into all, all of that post-Soviet legacy and everything. You talk about Ethiopia. I think that you know, in the in the new Tsardom, Ethiopia, of course, this involves this would involve the Tiwahedo becoming truly orthodox, accepting Chalcedon, which would be quite a task because there's you know tens of millions of them. But Ethiopia could be to the new Tsardom what Angola almost was to the USSR. I know there was you know talk of Angola joining. The USSR at times, kind of in like I kind of think of the, what was it called? Was it called the Arab Union when Egypt and Syria were the same country despite having no land border? You know these kind of interesting statecraft ideas I find interesting. But you know Ethiopia, like yeah, I mean there's a lot of similarities in many ways. You know if you were like a hardcore Ethiopian Orthodox nationalist, you could maybe make some kind of you know, third, fourth Rome argument for Haile Selassie, who, you know, technically existed as a quote-unquote emperor after Tsar Nicholas II died and, you know, was also, you know, taken out by communists in a somewhat similar fashion. So, you know, there's some interesting parallels and symbolism there. But you mentioned Putin going to South Africa and all of, you know, the Soviet legacy in South Africa. I mean, talk about you know, a whole state kind of falling for a Marxist, anti-white racial ideology. That's the country of South Africa. But people talk about, you know, how Russia supports some of these parties down there that are, you know, very anti-white. And that got stoked by this news story recently that came out about, I've mentioned this on the last episode about how, I remember in 2018, Putin talked about wanting to resettle like 15,000 uh, Afrikaners, you know, white South African boar in the Moscow region, the Tver region, other regions of Russia to, for farming purposes and, you know, to so they can have a better life than where they have in their, you know, anti-white, formerly, you know, good country that they used to live in. But this news story came out about how Russia starting, you know, 2023 this year, Russia building African villages, you know, multiple new towns with 3,000 plus, you know, Africans. And for some reason, all these news sites were using these pictures of all these Bantu as the you know, like as I guess the Africans that were going to be there. But then you read a little bit more about it and it's all Afrikaners. So all these people were talking about like, oh, look at this, Russia, Russia's a coal country, you know, all this stuff like that. But in reality, it was, you know, something that, you know, a quote unquote white nationalist would in theory be very supportive of. So I was glad to see that I had said in the previous episode before that news story came out that I hoped Putin would be following through on his 2018 promises there. You know, someone, was it Anatoly Karlin was crapping on me saying, oh, it's just propaganda. There is no white genocide in Russia. It's like, all right, bro. But I think uh, in general, it's it's good to see. I don't think that, you know, outside of, you know, political language towards Africans, there's really any of this silly, Russia's going to become a third worldist, you know, mixed race African nation. You know, that's that's not, I don't think that's on the horizon anytime soon. But Unless you have anything else you want to say about Africa and everything, uh, we can kind of start talking about the church persecution. I mean, there's even some church comments about Africa as the whole African exarchate thing becomes, you know, kind of continues to leech on as the EP shows no interest in 
calming down. Frankly, they've just been inflaming the schism every week, it seems. Yeah, I think I just wanted to mention, for those of you interested, I guess, in Afrikaners and Boris moving to Russia, and especially the Tverskaya Oblast, which is one of the heartlands of Russia. Of course, you remember great saints like um, St. Michael of Tver, St. Alexander of Tver. Tver has its own, it's almost its own uh, council of Tverskaya saints. So it's a very, very old Russian oblast. And now they're inviting the Afrikaners to build a, what, what the Russians are calling an Afro-village. So the local Boers and the and the you know people who've descended from these Dutch settlers are being welcomed to the to Tver, and of course uh, there's a lot of land which simply is unmanaged, and these Afrikaner farmers, are of course, a skilled uh, skilled you know skilled of land, they can probably buy equipment from Russian industrial sites, and of course get things moving. Um, it's really a positive trait, but I guess the the other benefit for for orthodoxy here is that well, these Afrikaners perhaps in South Africa itself had no access to orthodoxy just simply because of the lack of orthodox churches down there. And now moving to Tver has its own has its own holy places, has its own saints, has its own monasteries. Every village has an orthodox church in Tver, and so all of these farmers would, for the first time in their lives, now that they moved to Russia, all these um, white South Africans will have the chance of actually coming in touch with orthodoxy. In fact, in a very palpable sense, they visit a local village, they visit, say, a local museum, and they'll see icons there, they'll see crosses, they'll see um, paintings, things like that, which speak about Orthodox Christianity. In fact, it's almost like a, a missionary work that Russia is doing by inviting some of these white farmers who are disenfranchised both socially and economically and being discriminated against in South Africa, inviting them to Tver and to these other oblasts around Russia. So it's actually a very good Christian project, if anything. I agree. I'm very encouraged by it and i think you know it's sad to see a you know a people have to flee because look i mean you know a true boar whose descendants go back to you know the, the 17th century there they've been there a lot longer than even some of the black a lot of the blacks you know a lot of those came in you know in the in the decades after that initial dutch migration so it's 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 the same as you know a, a true anglo stock american having to flee the united states so it's it's a real tragedy but yeah, and then talking about the church, I mean, you probably know more about the whole African exarchate situation thing now and the whole persecution. Yeah, like one of the primary stories that came out of the African summit, which wasn't covered a lot on Twitter as well as some of the mainstream media sites, simply because, well, Patriarch Kirill was involved and it was a lot, I guess it was a lot more interesting to see what Lavrov and President Putin would say just simply about the um, the overthrow of the Niger government, etc. And people were more interested in perhaps the uh, secular side of the African summit, but what they didn't notice was the fact that Patriarch Kirill was presented with a model of a new cathedral that would be built in Uganda for, you know, on behalf of the Russian Orthodox Church, completely funded by by the Moscow Patriarchate for the people of Uganda to appreciate. And this this new church model, it really, in, in many ways, it looks like the military cathedral that was built on the outskirts of Moscow, funded by Shogu in uh, late 2019 and, you know, during the early COVID pandemic. It's a really cool-looking cathedral. It obviously has some adjacent structures, almost like a monastery-type structure surrounding it, as well as its own Kremlin-style construction, which I, be, I guess it would it would be beneficial in a country like Uganda with somewhat of an unstable uh, military situation and occasional coups. There's a, a lot of banditry which occurs, so a big cathedral of sorts, a big Orthodox cathedral, would need a lot would need a large fence or a large gate. So it would kind of serve a similar purpose to say some of the ancient monasteries you see in the Middle East, which all have huge you know huge fences, gates, as well as even military-style walls protecting them. So in fact, this particular cathedral being built um 
is you know uh, it's being built in Kampala, the capital of Uganda. It's it's just a really it's a really good sign that the Russian church is actually not just taking over what once belonged to the Patriarchate of Alexandria, as is being claimed by the Ecumenical Patriarch as well as uh, Patriarch Theodosius, but it's it's actually building building new things. It's actually not just taking, but it's also contributing. And you may ask, well, why Uganda of all places? Well, simply because Uganda was one of the original original countries wherein I'll or well, I think it was several hundred African priests from Uganda wrote letters officially to the Moscow Patriarchate asking asking to be to be taken into a union with, with Moscow and they didn't want to be a part of the Greek Church of Alexandria. So it was in fact Uganda which began this entire project of the African Exarchate of the Moscow Church. So I guess Uganda will receive this first big large gift from Moscow, which is you know, the funding of this large cathedral. It's a really positive trait, and possibly we'll see this uh, in other places across Africa eventually as the Exarchate expands. And in fact, Africa itself is seen as this uh, this place where missionary work is 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 ripe, and uh, you know it's, it needs to be expanded upon. And simply, it shouldn't just be left to the Patriarch of Alexandria to pull to pull the heavy weight, of course. Uh, the Russia could, of course, participate now that the Russian church is the richest and it has all these resources. It can actively assist in um, spreading the truth of orthodoxy around. But, of course, uh, it comes kind of every time we speak about Africa, right, Conrad? We mention, of course, the exarch Bishop Leonid and him, him claiming that Africa is part of the Russian world, which means, of course, Africa will participate in this uh, in this big building of the Russian world and where wherein uh, orthodoxy will be taught kind of broadly to everybody around the world as part of the Russian world project, the Orthodox Church. There is this always that that disgusting flavor of betrayal, which you know comes out of the Patriarchate of Alexandria, because you do remember the fact that, you know, the Patriarch of Alexandria did support the false metropolitan epiphany of Kiev, and he did support Zelensky, and he even met with Zelensky. And it's just, it brings about this almost, it darkens the whole story. Every time we hear about Africa and how orthodoxy is spreading, we always recall the Ukrainian schism of 2018. And in fact, that stays with us today, unfortunately. What we heard about in Kiev was that, well, the Kiev Pichersk Lavra, as we, me and Conrad spoke about this like a few weeks ago, the fact that the Kiev Pichersk Lavra was given by the government officially to the monks to use, uh, you know, to use essentially for free. And now they're taking it back slowly. Firstly, just this week, a couple of days ago, they, they took away some of the hotels which were within the lava itself and they were used for pilgrims. The hotels were taken over by police officers and they came in, they sealed all the doors. And that's probably the footage you guys saw of the police officers walking around the Kiev Pichersk Lavra, sealing up doors, putting up uh, notices that, look, this these uh, buildings have been taken over by the state. Everybody inside has to leave, etc. And, uh, you know, this is a light form of persecution. In fact, I guess we are seeing this level of persecution restart again. We did see a bit, a bit of a lull earlier this year from about March until now. And for whatever reason, now that now that the counteroffensive is failing, we see Zelensky and his government really pushing the church again internally, trying to get, I guess, trying to restart persecution, trying to, because maybe they're realizing that, in fact, if Russia, you know, there is this idea that if, if Russia does push for a peace treaty with Ukraine, if the peace treaty does occur, then Zelensky's government can eradicate the uh, Ukrainian Orthodox Church, the canonical one, 
uh, completely wipe it off the face of the earth or wipe it from Ukraine completely by just simply taking all of its property. If Russia is not willing to fight and to defend some of these persecuted bishops like we saw uh, Bishop Jonathan finally, he was one of the first metropolitans of the, of the canonical Ukrainian church whose house was uh, raided by Ukrainian uh, federal operatives and law enforcement. They raided him. They checked all of his books. They probably found some lives of saints which didn't exactly align with the idea of a Ukrainian independent state, shall we say? Like, I'm sure you know what kind of books they may have found in his house, as well as commentary of saints. And now he's been sentenced to five years in prison. So an actual metropolitan of the church sentenced to five years, and his lawyers simply couldn't defend him in front of the corrupt prosecution and the judicial system in Ukraine. So again, uh, persecution is active, and it seems like the Russian government, the, the church has already admitted that persecution is going on at the last hierarchical council in Moscow. Why hasn't the Russian government been using this uh, this particular persecution as as an impetus like as, as for example saint constantine used in his some of his civil wars he just said look we're defending orthodoxy around the entire empire we all need to be united by this idea of no persecution of christians anymore he was uh, in many ways inflamed by this idea he kind of took it on board and uh, i suppose putin's government can do the same they can also say look we're fighting the smo not purely for these vague ideas of denazification or demilitarization or creating a buffer state between russia and nato but in fact we're fighting to end persecution to end i guess uh, the bullying of the orthodox christians in ukraine but that hasn't been that particular message just hasn't been utilized by the russian secular elites and that's what i guess one of the big mysteries that we're still asking questions about one and a half years later and we talk even in detail more about you know that question and why some of those things may not be at the forefront in some of our episodes of ether hour but yeah the, the persecutions they continue to just the the pedal continues to be pushed down and the speed you know it's more and more the speed continues and the ecumenical patriarch is offering no assistance you know metropolitan emmanuel of chalcedon you know one of the most i think uh least orthodox in his behavior bishops of the fanar visited Zelensky recently you know just openly giving more and more legitimacy to the persecution you know as you know mass soldiers are locking people and orthodox christians inside rooms within monasteries and you know all sorts of terrible really just terrible things that you know everyone is seeing for all the world you know as elon musk has kind of uncensored twitter you know tens of thousands if not millions of people are seeing these images at this point and there's really a lot of christians in america that are realizing that dang this is uh everything i heard about i guess religion overseas that my country supports is just a total lie and you know eventually maybe that'll fill i mean that starts to filter down even into even what they heard about supposed you know wahhabist islam you know maybe who is even behind something like 9-11 i'm starting to get you know off track here but you know, not just in Ukraine is, you know, the Orthodox world facing, you know, some tragedy. Also, Metropolitan Daniel of Tokyo, he reposed. He was, you know, 84 years old. So it's, you know, I'm sure he, li he lived a long, you know, fruitful life. But, you know, he was the head of the autonomous Japanese Orthodox Church. And he, you know, they're looking for their replacement now. And as far as with his age and his status, I've heard Dimitri that he was technically considered like the second most senior bishop in, in the Russian Orthodox Church. Is that correct? Yeah, he was in terms of by age and by seniority. He has been a bishop for many, many years. In fact, 
and he's held the position. In fact, he was almost uh, elected patriarch. There was a popular vote online during in 2009. You know, this is still, I guess, early internet when Patriarch Kira was elected, and there was a popular vote that they said, let's elect Metropolitan Daniel of Tokyo to the position of patriarch. But, you know, his candidacy, of course, was considered, but he, he didn't, didn't get that much appreciation in the in the council of 2009, of course. Well, simply because Tokyo is so far away. And in fact, uh, how beneficial would it be for him to be patriarch? In fact, he's probably, I mean, he served so well in Japan and actually increasing just the awareness of the Japanese people to orthodoxy, promoting orthodoxy. Orthodoxy in Japan is thriving in many ways, unlike, for example, in countries such as China, where it's still kind of only, it's only taking off its training wheels. Uh, in fact, there are, of course, challenges to orthodoxy in, in Japan, which um, need to be considered by the next metropolitan and a memory eternal to metropolitan Daniel. But the, uh, the church in Japan still, there are, there's not a single monastery actually set up in Japan, not for nuns, not for women or, nor men. Uh, so that's still one of the challenges, and it does uh, bring to question as to who will be elected the next metropolitan of Tokyo. Would it be uh, would it be a monk who's maybe um, living in Kyoto or Osaka or somewhere in Tokyo? Maybe because there are Japanese monks there, but they don't live in monasteries; they live you know, near churches and somewhat in the world. Um, or would it be a, a bishop from Russia, perhaps a Japanese bishop somewhere who's training or just graduated seminary? Maybe somebody young. Somebody with, you know, somebody in their late 30s or early 40s, perhaps. It's still a bit of a mystery. Or maybe just one of the local Japanese bishops will be promoted to the to that seat of authority once held by St. Nicholas of Japan. And nevertheless, I think Metropolitan Daniel, you know, of good memory, There's, uh, I happened to see him in person on one occasion and, and meet him, and that was a huge blessing. He really didn't look his age. He almost like, you know, when people describe St. John of Shanghai, how he like almost floated around the church, like moved seamlessly. You know, some hierarchs, you see them and due to old age, they move very slowly around the altar, around the church. And, you know, they, they struggle sometimes even altar boys need to support them or a subdeacons, things of that nature. But he, him, in fact, he moved very freely and easily. He, he didn't look 84 or 85, whatever his age was. And uh, yeah, we, we wish, um, we of course pray for the soul of... Uh, that former hierarch of the land of the rising sun, and hopefully they they receive a new, uh, great leader who could lead their church into, I suppose, the next, the next stage of its development. That it's that Japanese diet, that raw fish and the uh, and rice and you know seaweed and whatnot. It really, I've heard it's I've heard it's good for you. You know, right behind the Mediterranean diet in the, in the uh, vitality. You know, I don't know about vitality, but in the longevity longevity function, but. As far as hierarchs go, you know, Metropolitan Saba here of the Antiochians in America is continuing to, you know, please everybody. He's made it clear that there will be, you know, the growth of Antiochian monasteries and whatnot. And he's, you know, he's coming out hard against scientism. So we, we're, we're very pleased here. I think the we're seeing good things in the church. You know, we're seeing, you know, the growth of, you know, multiple monasteries in the Russian church and the Greek church now, hopefully in the Antiochians and the Serbian church as well about in Montana, you know, hopefully there will be an English language Athenite monastery under the Serbian Orthodox church. You know, that's as far as American pan-Orthodoxy goes, that's about as pan-Orthodox as I think we can get. So I'm looking forward to all of that. I want to tell people about my Ether Hour uh, episode this weekend. I called it 13.5. It's still a great full episode. Everyone should listen to it. I want to set the stage a little bit. Dimitri is, if I'm not mistaken, are the Russians trying to send something to the moon again? Well, there is a moon mission of sorts that's been launched recently. Of course, the uh, the Russians are, of course, very proud. For, this is the first lunar mission in more than 50 years. And essentially, uh, this particular rocket that flew up, I guess, uh, into the atmosphere recently has 
is is set to uh, cross the is, is is set to go around the moon in a few in 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 a few weeks time. Of course, it takes apparently a long time to to reach the moon. And uh, yeah, it's it's somewhat interesting to to see the post Soviet Russian Federation actually participate in any moon missions because. Kazakhstan was their formal, I guess, lunar, or, you know, their, their lunar, not even lunar, but any any sort of space bases that the USSR had were stationed in Kazakhstan. And now Kazakhstan is no longer a part of Russia, is not really formally united. So, yeah, we will see this kind of uh, this kind of project expand itself. And of course, uh, by the time it reaches the moon on August the 23rd, I guess officially we'll have some sort of footage from it um it's not it's not really said to it's not really said to of course land on the moon or anything of the sort so those of you thinking that russia sending astronauts to the moon or people are going to walk the moon again that's not happening so the russians allegedly don't have the technology in order to land people on the moon yet you know it's only been 60 years and apparently the americans somehow did all, all those decades ago funny enough but the russians are simply flying around the moon to taking taking photographs and and returning back and you know there is this sort of consideration of you know based on your recent a for hour episode is well we didn't really see this see this kind of this this wasn't really an advertised mission and in fact um could this be just Russian propaganda, for example, trying to raise the prestige amongst all this economic and geopolitical turmoil, just raising the prestige of the Russian Federation, showing that, look, it's still capable of actually taking some of these extraorbital missions into outer space. And the Russian Federation is actually doing fine and great domestically that it can afford to do something like this, afford to actually run its own spaceports and, you know, things of that nature. I... I think it does bring the whole space debate into into, into consideration because you know well N- NASA has been responsible for probably uh, one of the large, largest increases in atheism in the United States. Like I watched your episode with Anthony a few a few days ago, just listen, listening to it, you could really tell that well the, the whole the whole obsession with space, at least in the previous century, has been associated with atheism, with scientism, and denial of uh, denial of you know Genesis, a denial of god's creation of the universe and just this it's almost like an ideological obsession in a way and i'm not sure if russia's falling victim to that but they they are seeming to use it for purposes of propaganda well we've discussed in some of our ether hours about the russian deep state and the russian elite i think we've discussed one of the top people who is the head of roscosmos and kind of where his background came from and maybe you can tap us in Fill me in again on the details. I'm forgetting his name, Dimitri. But the yeah, everyone should definitely check out. It'll be linked below. Ether Hour 13.5. Space is fake. It's a re-upload of my interview with Anthony of Westgate on his podcast that is no longer ongoing. The reversion, and we discuss you know cosmology, uh, you know geocentrism, heliocentrism, you know flat Earth. We get we go into all of it. It's pretty gets pretty spicy and based. So. Be sure to check that out. I've heard nothing but good things from it, you know. And I've gotten, you know, if people disagree, there's nothing, just respectfully comment, you know, I don't, I won't take kindly to people, you know, spurging out in the comments, so, you know. But if you respectfully disagree, I've, I love engaging with people about this stuff. But, yeah, I mean, I think as far as what we're going to get from this, I'll be, maybe I'll analyze some of the potential CGI images. I think the Chinese are the ones that are going to be, trying to put people on the moon in the somewhat near future. And I don't know if they think they've got a Stanley Kubrick that can make it look realistic enough. But yeah, I mean, there's just people can check out some of the links in the description of the Substack post for Ether Hour 13.5. I have a lot of, you know, video evidence on the ISS and stuff like that being 
obviously staged and whatnot. So it's it's interesting stuff. But I think in general, yeah, Russia is still it's one of their po- one of their Soviet legacies was the you know the space race. And you see all these memes from Z people. It's like and there, there's some truth to it that you know Russia had all these other milestones and like aeronautics and you know kind of atmospheric kind of record breaking and then america fakes the moon landing and it's like oh they won the space race whereas you know i think there were realistic things being said with like breaking the sound barrier up at high altitudes and whatnot but then you start you know getting past the quote-unquote van allen belts you know translation the firmament and it starts to really get into this and then like you said dimitri it's been 60 years we don't have this technology according to chief astronaut don pettit you know we destroyed the technology and then we forgot how to do it, and then we taped over the original moon landing footage. It's like, okay, at what point do you kind of just admit the jigs up, man? Like, it's obviously you you faked the moon landing for Cold War propaganda. Like, that's that's how it went down. And it's also now the you know the pillar supposedly of human achievement, and you get counter signaled by you know uh, people online that are just so you know they're just married to this idea of scientific progress that they just can't deal with the fact that you know, a chief tenant of, you know, Zog and kind of the modern mind virus is the stranglehold that institutional science has and the moon landing is kind of their coup de grace. And, you know, read uh, some of the links I talk more about gravitational theory and ether theories and other things that also are important in deconstructing the Einsteinian post-moon landing kind of perspective that we've all been indoctrinated into in the science world. But yeah, check it out. I think it's good. Maybe I'll talk more about it with some other people. I'm talking to some friends that know more about specific details about the whole cosmology debate. So let me know in the comments, maybe, if you want to hear more of that. But yeah, in general, uh, if you have anything else you want to say about space, Dimitri, or the whole Roscosmos thing laid on me. But we have uh, there's a few other stories I want to tap into as well. Yeah, I think, uh, so the previous leader, of course, of Roscosmos was this right-wing Russian Orthodox politician, Dmitry Rogozin, who has since retired from that role, as you mentioned, but he, um, he's, of course, actively participating in the SMO at the moment, posting things on Telegram and Kontakte, quite a, quite a vocal person. Again, he, he's somewhat, uh, he's somewhat of an interesting character himself. We speak about him on one of our A4Hour episodes about the Russian elites, him, of course, being a member of, I guess, the Russian right-wing and becoming this... Um, you know, participating in the in the Putin government, trying to reform it from the inside. He has a very interesting story. But the the Luna twenty five mission that's right now flying to the moon, of course, one of the goals, which is officially stated, is of course besides photographs, it's going to land a probe on the moon and moon itself. And of course, the probe will be somewhat remote controllable, I think. And yes, that's supposed to bring back data and things. So again, very interesting. And again, one of the I guess propaganda and somewhat psychological benefits of this mission, at least for Russia. At least this is how it's advertised. Is well, Russia is able to send a probe to the moon and send a rocket that flies around the moon um, without any Western help, because allegedly uh, Roscosmos has done this somewhat independently. Or you know, China did help a little bit, but the the EU, America, they didn't contribute anything to this. Whereas the Soviet missions, they somewhat used uh, you know. You know, they still had some cooperation with the United States in terms of, you know, at least information was passed back and forth. But here, Russia seems to be completely isolated and it's capable. Again, I don't know if this is the victory the Russian state thinks, you know, we'd be more impressed if the Russian state, again, and maybe this is just my zealotry speaking, but we'd be more impressed if the Russian state announced, you know, for example, some great achievement in Ukraine, for example, or some sort of move to, um, 
you know, to move a move to actually resolve the Ukrainian war peacefully and maybe end the church persecution rather than sending a probe to the moon. I think there's more palpable achievements you could look at, or even perhaps reforming itself, reforming some, reforming some of the internal oligarchic structures, which we, you know, we speak about on occasion. There are just some very interesting elites within Russia itself who seemingly act completely unhinged, and they, uh, you know, maybe reforming migration law, for example, for Central Asians, that would be a bit a bit, uh, a bit more palpable than sending a simple probe to the moon, or allegedly doing so. Uh, yeah, it, again, it's, it just seems to be a big propaganda act, uh, similar to something Elon Musk would tweet or post about, and I'm just not sure how, how overall effective it would be. Although, of course, uh, entertaining for most of us, uh, you know, we all want to see big things get launched up into the air and, and big airplanes and things. So, of course, it's, the technology is incredibly, uh, you know, incredibly impressive. It's just exactly how much effect would it have on what's happening on the ground. I think the fate of Russia is being decided right now in Ukraine in this conflict. Now that, again, the second mobilization wave is being announced, the church is being persecuted. You know, Ukraine amounts to, you know, almost a quarter or even a third of all Russian bishops. And, you know, it's being torn apart at the seams. I, I don't know how important the moon mission is at this point. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the moon is likely a plasma. You can't really go there, but, you know, you can listen to you can listen to the episode to, to hear more about that. But it's interesting, you know, that guy, maybe he was based, you know, he was the head of Roscosmos, and then he's out of power for, you know, a year and a half, two years, and suddenly now they're sending stuff to the moon again. You know, maybe he was maybe he was putting a damper on some of that nonsense. Who knows? I don't know what was up. I didn't follow Roscosmos back then, so I'm just, I'm just seeking out of my ass here. But, yeah, I think before we give a little bit of a, commentary on everything going on in the u.s with trump there i mean they're really going after him i want to mention a few a few stories i mean in south america the one of the top polling candidates for the presidency there was assassinated and then immediately afterwards victoria newland's getting involved and the fbi is heading the investigation so there's some very suspicious things going on you know we've taught we had talked about some of the lula bolsonaro stuff back in the day we've mentioned you know other South America is not the main domain of what we discussed, but, you know, World War III has, you know, its tentacles have extended there. Of course, Brazil is the bee in bricks, it's going to be. And Lula, despite not being anywhere near as independent or, quote-unquote, you know, based as Bolsonaro, he does have the that old-school Russian-like kind of South American socialist ties. So he's, he's always going to be a player in the multipolar world because, you know, Brazil is this huge country. But in Ecuador, it seems that... Uh, the U.S. is kind of uh, covering up for this sort of obvious assassination that went down there. And, you know, Ecuador is actually one of the more stable, you know, one of the slightly higher, you know, quality of life countries, especially in northern South America. So, you know, it's interesting that stuff's going on there. We've I've talked about what's going on there a little bit with our good friend Tristan Haggard. You might remember, you know, Primal Edge Health, you know great guy you know he's filled me in a few times on what's going on in ecuador he's on the he's living the homestead life down there in the clean and good living with the goats and the cows and everything so you know show him some love on twitter and whatnot but yeah i mean then you go to asia as well the north korea has just been you know we may have mentioned this a little bit on the last episode but north korea is you know they've just every time they just fully continue to increase their support for the special military operation there's reports that they've pledge to send 100,000 troops to the Donbass itself. And, you know, that's, uh, who knows how, you know, serious that really is. The North Koreans, they have the luxury of kind of being able to say things and, you know, kind of act on that as they please. But they've also been very bellicose towards South Korea. So we're seeing, again, 
with Niger and Sahel, with Ukraine, with, with stuff in the Caucasus, you know, Syria, and then of course China, Taiwan, and now these other peripheral Asian conflicts. I mean, it is real. Like, just think about the timeline of World War II. As I said in that thread I mentioned earlier, when I was quoting myself about Africa over a year ago, uh, one of the quotes I have in that, and this is also in my World War Now article on the Substack, is, you know, were they calling it World War II during the Anschluss? You know, maybe some people were predicting that, but we're right in that stage right now. You know, we're right, you know, we're right before, you know, the German invasion of Czechoslovakia, the Anschluss, you know, ultimately the the whole debacle in Poland and how that all eventually leads to, you know, Operation Barbarossa. And that's, you know, whatever that will look like, that's what's going to be decided here in the next five years, you know, kind of what would be the quote-unquote Operation Barbarossa of World War Three, And maybe it won't be something like that. Maybe it'll be, you know, three slightly smaller fronts across, you know, an even broader spectrum of fronts, you know, due to the increased multipolarity of, you know, just kind of the world identity and how we've all been globalized so much that it's all, these fronts are even, the African front will be even more relevant than just, you know, North Africa like it was in World War II. There will be, you know, all this sub-Saharan stuff will also be playing a role. And that's what, that's what we've been seeing for the last few episodes and we've been covering all of that. So, Dimitri, do you have any thoughts on, on the state of World War III? Yeah, I think what we really haven't seen yet is, in fact, this a larger escalation in the Middle East, because I think what's very interesting is Russia and Turkey, in fact, in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, that's probably the only place that can actually spark up and cause a real fire. But in fact, Russia and Turkey seem to agree that they prefer Azerbaijan over Armenia in many ways. So in fact, when the two big superpowers in that particular area where the Caucasus Mountains meet, um, agree on one particular stance, and they, you know, they both support Azerbaijan for various reasons. It doesn't look like it doesn't look like that could cause even even the West doesn't the West doesn't seem to have the ability to intervene and really even improve Armenia's military enough to actually cause a certain proxy conflict there. And Iran is actually acting very very wisely by supporting Russia. Notice how Iran sends its drones and technology and also other equipment, Kevlar's and things like that, even basic clothing for Russian for, for the Russian military personnel to Russia because it knows that well, look, it's almost like if you don't if Iran doesn't support Russia now, the the world powers, the globalists, are going to come for Iran next. They're not going to let, allow this conservative Muslim uh, Muslim republic to exist for much longer than you know. Once Russia's taken care of and run, once Russia is reformed and liberalized, Iran will be next on the chopping block. As Iran is one of the legendary anti-democratic villains of the world, so it does need to go. And so Iran's like, okay, we need to kind of keep this conflict in Europe rather than on our doorstep somewhere in North in Azerbaijan, because Iran does have, again, we spoke about this many times, but Iran does have border considerations with Azerbaijan, which are not in fact, um, which are in fact un sort of, you know, still, still a bit tense up there. So something could of course begin and Azerbaijan could, could become this next, next big issue for Iran. But so they're not letting that happen. They're in fact, keeping the attention of the world of the globalists on, on that Eastern European front, which is bad for us because again, our church is being affected. Our people are being somewhat, uh, you know, you know, basically, uh, you know, they're being victimized, you know, un uh, innocent people are dying, but it's a good thing from the perspective of the Middle East and I guess conservative powers, because they get to, uh, again, keep the conflict far away from their doorstep. Uh, and we, well, the other big players we really haven't seen in this Conrad is, of course, the the massive Arabic states, the big oil states, who are simply sitting back and not contributing, not really agreeing. Like we saw that Middle Eastern peace summit really fail and not really achieve anything. Of course, Russian representatives weren't invited to the talk, which is exactly useless. If it's going to be a mediation talk, even 
basic things such as you know mediation and conferencing conferencing at a domestic for example like a imagine just the casual not not even casual but just the real domestic dispute of sorts you bring both parties to the talk you bring both the wife and you bring the husband right in this case if russia if russia is the husband and ukraine's the wife well the husband wasn't invited to the talk so why is this saudi saudi arabia conference even taking place it's useless it won't achieve anything and we also see israel as well taking this back seat it's almost like Israel was somewhat bloodied, or maybe used up most of its uh, most of its um, kind of fuel and ideological power during this uh, ISIS ISIS debacle in Syria over the last few over the last decade. And in fact, Israel is really sitting back trying to resolve itself domestically. So I think the fact that we haven't entered into like an outright hot World War Three is due to the fact that the Middle East is still in this status quo frozen state that it hasn't really. Um, and you've been engulfed in flames yet. And I'm not saying that it, it's it's bound to have, I mean, all of these contradictions in the Middle East are still unresolved, right? So they could, of course, occur in the next decade or two, or even five years. And then, of course, there's always that Chinese-Taiwanese uh, conflict that will, you know, eventually play out. Or even even if it's not an actual geopolitical uh, military conflict, there will be a diplomatic a diplomatic war, to, war of sorts. There will be uh, either a joining, such as what happened with Hong Kong, or there will be, uh, of course, the presence of Americans. And maybe the Americans and the Chinese are going to juke it out in some sort of way. But generally, I think just the expansion into Africa has really shown uh, to, you know, our listeners, you guys, as well as me and Conrad, it's kind of proven the fact that, look, as soon as the military world conflict draws in the Africans, that's when you know it has turned into an actual world war. And Africa now is completely inflamed. Like it is, it is just, you can obviously see there are still post-colonial states belonging to like British influence. There are still those countries, again, which have always belonged to the French. And of course, in terms of landmass, they're larger than the European Union. Union, And of course, now there's there's coups going on and Russia's directly involved, there's Chinese influence and the church is involved too, of all things, right? So again, uh, now that Africa's here, I think we can ultimately say that, yes, we are in this next post-COVID phase of the of the conflict. It's kind of becoming really warm. And, and also the distraction is gone. So no one's worried about the pandemic anymore. Nobody's worried about... Uh, nobody's worried about these artificial concerns. People are focusing, by people I mean individuals as well as countries are really focusing on their own sovereign, on their own sovereign goals, including countries like Niger, Burkina Faso, Mali. They're very self-interested now, and everyone's going to fight, juke it out over various um, local contradictions and local objectives and goals. It's not that the whole world is fighting one another just because it's, you know, all these countries are not all fighting for the same goals, but. You know, sometimes contradictions they align in time, and this is why you know, events such as World War One took place among seemingly uh, Christian, all these Christian European countries, Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox countries that sim- simply did not agree on certain things. That's just the unfortunate reality. And there are people behind the scenes. There are globalists. There are um, you know groups who shall not be named here on World War Now, which you can listen to the AFR episodes or read, read our articles to kind of find out exactly who these people are that benefit from these conflicts and they actually spark and light these giant fires around the world and benefit from, from them ultimately. Because again, these people sitting in bunkers and living overseas in the UK or in New York, they don't necessarily get involved themselves. They simply control things from abroad. When you mentioned the Middle East, and it's true, the Caucasus is probably the hottest zone right now in that region, but Syria is always ongoing, and that just directly ties in Turkey, the U.S., Russia, Iran, and Israel, kind of at all times. So it's, and you know, I think the fact that 
Assad, he's been empowered, so that's been an ongoing conflict since 2011. It's always going to be such a key to all of this. And you mentioned China. I do agree that if China can diplomatically solve the Taiwan crisis, though, I mean, we're going to see like a rush of America's enemies just doing whatever they want from a geo like like North Korea, Iran, they'd make moves because it's like, oh, wow, you know, the U.S. is that weak. You know, that's just that would be a big, a big blow to the U.S. So we're going to I do want to eventually get a China expert on to kind of talk about the situation there and everything. Maybe maybe Steve Sue, you know, I want to talk to him. That'd be an interesting show. But yeah, I mean, if you have anything else to say, we can discuss that as well. But I want to kind of get home to the home front in the U.S. Things going on with with Trump, with, you know, the campaign and everything is heating up. Trump, of course, facing all of these indictments, the main one being the, you know, quote unquote, J6 indictment for these conspiracy charges in D.C. Man, he's getting screwed over. This judge is this Jamaican Obama appointee, and she's the only judge in the whole country that's throwing the book at these J6 defendants. She's like giving longer sentences than the prosecution is recommending in the case of some of these January 6 defendants. You know, she's, you know, just a total DMV lady tyrant. Like, this is just, you know, peak, peak idiocracy, decline of America. You know, I'm not going to. I could say more, but I don't want to get banned or anything. But this is, uh, I mean, this is just ridiculous that someone could be treated this way. And they're trying to put restrictions on basically what he can talk about regarding the case and all sorts of things like that on the campaign trail. Like, he's basically not going to be able to defend himself against whatever these people end up leaking to the media about the case and things about, you know, supposedly his treatment of the election. And, you know, they're just going to try to make it seem Again, none of this is, they're just trying to criminalize his statements and his beliefs about what happened in the election. It doesn't matter how, quote unquote, you know, scandalized someone is by that, some, how some democracy lover is scandalized by someone willing to do whatever it takes to do what's right and do what's necessary. But it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's freedom of speech. You know, that's how these things work. But they're trying to, this is how they're coming at you, you know. In Europe, they already killed free speech, you know, with Holocaust denial laws. And in America, this election denial stuff is going to be what gives them that back door in that. And, you know, we see in Florida's going all in with some of these anti-Semitism, you know, pamphleting laws as well. So it's it's all these, you know, backwards ways to just ban free speech. And it's it's terrible. It's not good. Trump's approval, of course, is skyrocketing, and that's no surprise. But the question is, like, at this level, like, they're going to try to find ways to, like, look, as Jim said on our show, if they, Jim Jatchers, of course, if they ban him from the ballot in Pennsylvania, it's over. He can't win. Like, it's not possible. Yeah, and someone like Ron DeSantis can't just come in and save the Republican Party if, if Trump is unavailable to do so. And if Trump is imprisoned, then he can't campaign properly in 2024. And frankly, I, I think his defense, his defense attorneys can draw out this trial in order for it not to, in order for him not to be imprisoned by, say, you know, if, if they play it out correctly, you know, draw it out all the way up until the election. But if Trump is imprisoned end of 2023 or early 2024 before the election actually pops off, then um, I'm just not sure if the Republicans could even take a Ron DeSantis and actually defeat a Bob Biden. I mean, that's the, yeah, that's the crazy thing. This lady Tanya Chutkan, his this 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 clown of a judge, she's yeah. talking about, yo, we're going with the principle of a speedy trial. Like she's trying to get this thing mm-hmm. going. Like they want this guy in jail within the next like two or three months. Like it's being, it's crazy. And I don't. Again, I think that. I mean, I mean, they've also got all the Stormy Daniels crap, the stuff in Georgia, the document stuff. I mean, who knows what they're going to do with all? They're just trying to overwhelm him, of course, with lawfare. But again, this rot—you're right. 
uh, Rod, as Trump calls him, Rod DeSantis. <laughs> he, uh, yeah, he's dead in the water. I mean, even uh, I think even Sleepy Joe could 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 run circles around this guy at this point. Like, is this guy autistic? Like, I'm sorry. Like, I'm not even trying to, you know, be rude to autistic people, but this guy just can't. This guy just doesn't have it. Like, he can't just have a normal interaction with a with somebody on the campaign trail. Meanwhile, Trump, you know, despite his age and you know, having been beaten down by, you know, what will be after all of this 12 years of straight presidential campaigning, because look, during his presidency, there was no break from the campaigning. It was just media onslaught after media onslaught. So, you know, the energy on this guy is, is insane, but, you know, I think he needs to come back to Twitter. You know, he needs to become an ex poster that needs to happen sooner rather than later. I think we'd all agree. And Trump needs to maintain that, you know, he's all about loyalty. He holds those grudges. He needs to keep that grudge against, against some of these Israelis and what they did. You know, he needs to not bring back Jared, no more Javanka, no more of that. Sheldon Adelson's dead. His widow's meeting with Ron DeSantis. You don't need to be taking that money. You know, it's it's dark MAGA time. You know, it's ultra MAGA. It's, 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 and we're gonna, we're not, you know, Netanyahu's experience, it's total, you know, pro 32nd week's protests in Israel. Things are still going on there. So there's no need to tie your horse to that sinking ship. We can... We can we can put America first here, and I think again they're doing everything they can to get Trump out. But it's going to be it's going to be another brutal election cycle for you know the average American patriot. Yeah, and look here on Wilder now we we're against this progressive judicial activism that we see both in Russia and in the U.S. Like Judge Antonov, of course, putting uh, Stelkov behind bars and putting all of his supporters away simply for throwing out like offensive words and ways. And Judge Trudkan as well. That um, I guess the uh, you know, immigrant judge of sorts that's, you know, presiding over the Trump trial and, you know, various, like, just, again, it's just offensive to, to us to view these, I guess, well, I wouldn't say Trump is exactly the most honest of people, but he is, he does need a fair share, you know, he is one of the only hopes we, I guess, have as, you know, people who are somewhat, you know, patriotic towards the American state, you know, we, we do want to see America not descend into this globalist hellhole or kind of ascend from the hellhole which it's in at the moment and actually rise up again, not be destroyed by the by the waves of degeneracy that, you know, that's, that's coming forth. And of course, America's participation in the Ukrainian conflict, like we see the Washington, Washington um, Journal actually clearly, well, I mean, sorry, Wall Street Journal clearly so, somewhat of a Republican uh Republican piece publishing anti-Ukrainian headlines. So we can see this kind of formulation that, look, if Trump does get a chance to run, there may be this anti-Ukrainian position which arises within the US, right, Conrad? Like, there's a chance that Trump may run on this, well, we have to withdraw aid from Ukraine. We have to stop giving them, you know, uh, these tanks and resources and occasional billions of dollars of aid packages every couple of months. That may be one of the beneficial positions, not just for our Orthodox Church, but for, I guess, the world in general. Like World War Three may be prevented by a Trump presidency. It's not just, uh, it's not just. We're not just speaking about this from a pro-American perspective. The whole world may benefit from this. Well, you know, Trump claims he can end the conflict in like a week or something. So, you know, if he's if Trump's into Trump, you know, he was really proud of all the North Korea stuff. If he's into that, you know, for his sake of his ego, if he wants to brag that he you know ends the conflict. And if he's willing to just accede to like major Russian demands, then that's epic. You know, I'm all for it. I think he'd be willing to do that. Like he'd rather give Russia more than have it drag out and not seem like he's as capable of a negotiator as he may have seemed. And he hasn't made, you know, too many. I think he's made certain promises about what he would have done before the war broke out that are, again, more charitable than the average NATOist, but definitely not what 
what we want to see. And we do know that he started giving weapons to Ukraine, which, you know, to be charitable to Trump there, I think any other president would have probably ramped up the support for Ukraine even earlier than Trump. And he just kind of did what whatever was. I mean, look, the military didn't even obey Trump, literally, like openly. There's, like, I think, multiple acts of just blatant treason were committed by the Joint Chiefs of Staff during Trump's presidency. So I'm sure he was signing on all sorts of things that he probably was barely even properly briefed upon by the military powers that be. So, you know, we're, we're in it for Trump here. You know, we're, we don't want to see him imprisoned. You know, it'll just make his support continue to go up. He's basically already got the nomination in the bag. But the question is, is it even possible to win the general? You know, obviously he has the support for it. It's just, is the political path in any way legally, demographically, you know, with all the shenanigans and stuff, the electoral fraud, like, is it even there? And, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat pessimistic, but, you know, ever since 2016, it's been a ride. So I think we, we really have no idea where exactly it's going, but, you know, it'll play into World War III, that's for sure. Yeah, that's right. I think in, you know, 2024 is going to be a big year. The Russian election will be on, I believe, the Belarusian election as well, as well as the American elections. In fact, we'll have almost this triumvirate of key elections affecting the, just affecting the status, the status, status quo of the world situation. And uh, yeah, just in terms of, in terms of actually uh, participating in that, I think, again, me and Conrad, I think we're on the same page. We think Orthodox Christians and, you know, just conscientious Christians, whether you're Protestant, Catholic, I think there is some something to say in that, you know, active political activism, you know, people practically participating in politics, it's still, it's still doable, I think, in today's day and age, even with all the um, with all the fake news and all the electoral fraud that occurs, I think it's it's still possible for Christians to participate in politics and just try to change things even slightly towards the better. Like even even locally, maybe handing out pamphlets or campaigning for maybe uh, a Christian member of Congress or something of that sort. I think that's somewhat still possible in in today's particular you know post twenty sixteen. Um, post-2016 climate. And yeah, I think that's probably where, you know, will, will we see that next year? Will we see any American Orthodox or Antiochian, whether they be Greek, Antiochian, Serbian bishops actually lining up and supporting any any of the local candidates? I'm not sure. Uh, but, you know, we'll most likely see the Greek Orthodox Church, of course, supporting Joe Biden, or even, even worse, the, the Antichrist fake figure of Gavin Newsom. I mean, if we see Archbishop Elpidophorus un unfortunately support Gavin Newsom, I think that'll be that may be the last nail in this uh, in this particular unholy coffin because um, Gavin Newsom is is most likely the scariest candidate. He looks he looks like a a worse version of Trudeau, like this fake artificial Antichrist type figure who simply says what his um you know it's almost like a male version of Kamala Harris just completely degenerate supportive of everything evil and of course he would he would give everything to the ukraine and he would give anything to actually begin world war three and actually light the world on fire for his whichever masters he serves i you know gavin newsom i think is the worst case scenario even a ron DeSantis um soy president would be better than that well i mean gavin newsom is as dumb as you know as foolish and as you know as, as misguided as Kamala Harris, but, you know, 40 times as competent. That's the scary part. So he, you know, actually, you know, is a capable white man who can get things done. And that's why, you know, he is like the Trudeau of, of America, which would be terrible. But yeah, I mean, El Pitaforos, he's, you know, a DNC. He lines up with them when it comes to politics. And look, if Trump plays his cards right, I think, and as the, if the persecution in Ukraine continues and Trump, you know, maybe some good political advisors will tell him to bring that up, you know, perhaps he could, I mean, who knows if Trump, maybe Trump already has the Russian vote in America locked down. But I think if uh, 
if he played his cards right there, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, the Antiochians or certain Rokor hierarchs would say that, you know, well, we don't endorse a candidate. We believe that, you know, Mr. Trump is would be a better, you know, it's very obvious that he would be better for the situation there. So who knows what could be stated, but I'm not, I'm not calling for anything. I don't think they need to endorse any candidate or anything. I just think that they, they would be wise for them to inform the, the public that, you know, there is a, an aspect to which the church will be directly affected by some of the foreign policy decisions of the U S which do come down to these elections, which again, if it wasn't for Trump, I wouldn't even be paying this second mind because really everyone would have the same perspective on it. But, you know, I think there's a chance that Trump could do something for the better in the, in the schism situation, but you know, we're getting, you know, good on time here to meet you unless there's anything you want to, you want to tap us into wrap us off about, uh, I think we're re- I'm about ready to wrap this thing up. Oh, just one very positive story. Just the published actually a couple of hours ago, just saw it about the Metropolitan of Lugansk, Pantelimon. So the People's Republic of Lugansk, now Lugansk Oblast, he, he has officially announced that in the west of Lugansk, so the territory formerly controlled by the Ukrainian forces, some Russian volunteers, you know, Orthodox Christians, discovered a an old Soviet bunker from the times of Operation Barbarossa and the Third Reich's invasion of the USSR. That And the bunker was actually mined up by, you know, Ukrainian booby traps. They, of course, demined it. And what they discovered in the bunker, guess what? The, the best treasures, right? What do you find in this hidden Soviet bunker? They found 18th, 19th century Orthodox icons. Icons of the Fiotokos, the uh, Saint uh, Saint Nicholas of Mira, Mira icons. They found icons of Pachayev Monastery saints and just really, really nice icons. There's a couple, a couple of very old icons of Saint Nicholas, actually, and even old church texts and and. I think even some religious objects used in used in liturgy as well. So it's very interesting that the Ukrainians actually hid all these things in the bunker itself from some of the churches they probably raided since the time of 2014, perhaps, and hid in this bunker. And Metropolitan Pantelimon, these items have been returned to him. So that's really awesome that you know we have almost like a a Russian discovery of a treasure trove amidst all this conflict. And I guess that's a, a good piece of news to, to end on simply because that uh, look, uh, even, even no matter how long this conflict goes on for, there will be positive resolutions to everything, even small ones such as this, where, you know, a small victories for, for the Christians in Ukraine, those of the persecuted church. And I guess that's, that's great. Of course, we pray for those affected by Zelensky's government and the current regime there. Well, that's a good place to to end it, I think. Be sure to subscribe, worldwarnow.substack.com. Like I said, the latest Ether Hour will be linked below. Check that out. We appreciate all the subscribers on there. We've gotten some great feedback. We've heard only positive things about the premium content back there. So thank you all so much. Be sure to check us out on Twitter, worldwarnow underscore. Check us out on Telegram, worldwarnowtelly. We're on Rumble now. You can check us out. A lot of our videos are slowly but surely getting uploaded there as it syncs to youtube so follow us on there as it'll be a good backup in case some crazy censorship happens but subscribe on youtube of course world war now let us know in the comments on youtube and substack you know anyone you'd like us to maybe talk to shows you'd like us to maybe be appearing on we are you know we're probably going to be appearing on some shows here in the next few weeks and months so you know keep us in the loop on things that you want to see things you want us to talk about and we always appreciate hearing your comments, but follow me on Twitter at GnomeRad, follow Dimitri on Twitter at OCanonist. Uh, be sure, again, worldwarnow.substack.com. We've got articles there, Dimitri's article about warrior clerics of the Orthodox Church. That is up there now. Be sure to read it. It's gotten some great feedback as well. You know, the full thing's available to premium subscribers. It's, you know, thousands and thousands of words, so 
you can't say we're not bringing you all sorts of different mediums of content. But again, we appreciate all of the support. And Dimitri, I'll leave you with the last word. Yeah, just thank you everybody for listening. Of course, uh, stay in touch with us, give us your feedback, and just look forward to some of the premium content we'll be uh, releasing for our subscribers and supporters on the World War Now Substack. Of course, if they, if anybody if anybody wants to hear a particular A for Hour episode on a certain subject, make sure to reach out to myself or Conrad, or even just uh, send a message to the World War Now page on Twitter, or comment on one of the Substack posts that this particular subject matter, because we do have. Uh, an entire schedule set out for the rest of the year. But if there is a particular subject that you guys would like to hear about, for example, the old believers or somebody wanted to hear about iconography, we could, of course, fit that into the schedule and discuss some of these subjects and maybe bring on some experts um, on, on one of the particular fields or you know topics. So anyway, thank you for your support. We appreciate it. And any um, fathers of the church listening to us, uh, we ask for your blessings and forgiveness if we made any sort of mistakes or we spoke out of line. We, of course, appreciate your prayers as well as uh, the, you know, the prayers of all Christians listening to this particular episode. So thank you guys for your support. God bless everybody.